Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset for another week. It's Sam Bruce in Sydney, joined as ever by the cheese and ham croissant enthusiasts, Christy Doran. Mate, welcome back to the pod for this uh, Monday evening. Um, did you manage to uh, treat yourself to another little um, French delight over the weekend? I just had a glass of French rosé and it was fabulous, but I'm drawing a bit of inspiration with this jumper that I'm wearing at the moment from TJ Perinara, who I saw repping it on a very cold, blustery kind of evening in Wellington, I think it was. So um, it's good to wear a cricket table knit every now and again. Yeah, interesting uh, choice of uh, fashion, I would say, at this point in time. It is a little bit cooler tonight in Sydney, uh, but um, certainly very warm over the weekend, but uh, we know you all didn't join us tonight. So whenever you're listening to uh, this pod uh, this week for um, weather updates from Sydney, uh, mate, let's rip in to it. Uh, I guess a, a weekend of, of super rugby that was um, reasonably disappointing from an Australian perspective, you would have to say. Uh, the Brumbies continue to do what they have been doing. Uh, they, I guess, had a, a little bit of a fight against Moana Pacifica for a little while. But otherwise, you'd have to say the Waratahs, the Rebels, the Force, and in patches as well, the Reds, lucky to survive against the Drua again for the second year running up there in Brisbane. Um, collectively, uh, a deflating weekend for uh, the Australian cohort as, as a whole? Yeah, deflating is probably a good word. It's not quite a reality check. You never know. We don't want to go too far ahead before looking and reflecting of the last weekend, but it's... Next weekend's ominous at this point in time. Big weekend on Friday night when you've got the Crusaders hosting the Brumbies and then the Waratahs, uh, a severely battered-looking Waratah side that's going to come up against a Chiefs team that's just rested Sam Kane and uh, Damien McKenzie off the bench, um, Samsioni Tokiahu off the bench as well, um, Brody Retallick to come back. Like It looks pretty ominous and... And the Rebels showed at times that they've got something that's brewing down there that's positive, but they were blown apart in a way. A couple of points throughout that game. We'll get back to that later on. But Sam, are you, are you surprised? At, uh, I'm not surprised by not just the results, but probably the feeling because we saw the Reds and the Brumbies win, but even the Brumbies, they didn't actually play well, but they showed the depth of their squad that mm. they didn't look great yet they still managed to eke out a really good um, win from a results perspective but the rest of them I'm not surprised no neither I certainly tipped each of the Hurricanes uh, Chiefs and the Highlanders on Sunday I mean the force gave it a a reasonable crack didn't they but um, they just uh, you know lamented some some poor decisions uh, at times throughout that match didn't quite have the you know that that creativity the attacking class that we've spoken about previously but there was one instance in the first half that's just I was thinking about today and it was the the yellow card um could have been argued a penalty try there where Mitch Hunt knocks the ball down I think that would have been probably a little bit tough given the cover was there but it, the the thing that infuriated me uh followed that was the forces decision to go to a line out then now um surely if your number 10 is out of the back line um the opportunity uh to move the ball uh has got to be out wide uh, the 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 Highlanders are a player down in the back line. So either you you set a scrum or you move the ball. Uh, of course, the Highlanders are expecting the line-out drive. So why wouldn't you shift the ball immediately off the top and expose that extra man that you have got in the back line, that one-man advantage at that point in time? So that, to me, is just decision-making. It's just rugby one on 101. It's recognising what you're playing in front of you, that you're up a man, um, and I know they, they scored a few minutes later through a nice little uh, chip down uh, the right touchline from the, the English halfback who's come across from, from Worcester. Um, but I just fa- Simpson, yeah. Simpson, yeah. I, I just found that whole decision-making process, you know, that, that's almost schoolboy stuff. It, it, it wasn't just then. Let's scroll back a week earlier against Moana Pacifica, who had a, a, a man, a player in the not just in the bin, but had a 20-minute spell. I think it was considered a red card. So they had a a numerical advantage for a long period of the game in Perth, and they did nothing with it. It was the worst 20 minutes, but that's that second 40 minutes when they were up against 14 men for a lot of it, 
the decision-making, the lack of game smarts, and it's such a travesty that people like Rod Kafer aren't involved in the game anymore. And that's a different point altogether. But he was one that came out really strongly often about Australian sides not having the game smarts and awareness about what to do when there's sin bins and what, what not to do. Because the force, a side that is managed to get two wins from four matches and they could have got a third against mm. a really disappointing Highlanders side. Um, the lack of understanding of, of how to go about that, you know, and, and this isn't just guys that have been around for a second or two. Bryce Hegarty, been all around the world, played at four yep. Super Rugby franchises. Um, Hamish Stewart played multiple, you know, I, I don't know how many matches, but at least 60 old have thought in Super Rugby been playing yep. for five years. Um, you know, there's guys, Michael Wells in the back row, the captain, guys there with a lot of game stars who should be able to recognise that. And you compare it to what New Zealand sides typically do, but you also compare it to what the Crusaders did against the Blues when they said, okay, uh, we'll, we'll take a scrum, which means that the Blues therefore have to lose a person because of a strange, bizarre law which requires if you if 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 you've already replaced a prop, you can't bring on another one if 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 a front roller's been sin binned. The tactical awareness, they take a scrum, they shift it straight away, they score within the first minute of a player being off. That is just some of the, the game smarts and the differences between Australian rugby and New Zealand rugby and the Brumbies and probably the rest in Australia. Yeah, that situation in Auckland, uh, brilliantly covered by your colleague and, and friend of the pod. Uh, Jeff Parks down there in Melbourne uh, also happened in the Waratahs, drew a game a few weeks uh, a few weeks ago. But you, you're exactly right that, um, you know, the, the recognition of, of certain circumstances within games uh, is poor across the board um, in Australian rugby. It's just it's game smarts. You're spot on. And and that's uh, that's got to be a concern for for Eddie Jones, I think the forces, they were probably the big losers of the weekend. I thought that game was winnable. I didn't think they would win it. I didn't entertain that either the Waratahs or or Rebels uh, would uh, come away with a win in either um, Wellington or uh, or Hamilton. But I thought the force were a genuine chance. And they, they certainly gave it a reasonable shake, although the game was done when they scored some late points there. And I think uh, it was a Bailey Kunzel missing the conversion, denying them a, a bonus point was a, a bit of salt into the wound. Uh, they've got tough games, two more games to come over in New Zealand. I think the Blues and, and maybe the Hurricanes to finish. So um, this, uh, their tour certainly only gets tougher from here. Um, you mentioned the Waratahs. They're back in Sydney on Friday night against the Chiefs. Those guys coming back, Retallick, Weber, Kane, uh, Tokayaho and Damian McKenzie to start against the Waratahs team that's already looking like the walking wounded once again. Um, doubts over Lenny Gleeson, uh, Lalakai Fakiti is out, Tane Edmed. Um, further doubts, I think, over Max Jorgensen. And clearly there's a management issue that needs to take place there with, with him being in his first year of, of Super Rugby and just 18 years old. Um, clearly the top four is, is a pipe dream now. Um, but as we spoke about last week, the next um, two weeks really take on uh, massive significance, don't they? Um, the uh, the Chiefs into, into the Brumbies, um, uh, they could be one and one and five. Yeah, and it's not just those players. From my understanding, Michael Hooper's child might have arrived a week early, potentially two weeks early, um, meaning that he's in potentially some doubt. And when you've already lost Charlie Gamble, As who's well, yeah. out for out for a while, I'm not sure. Like if it's an early baby, it it probably comes up to the individual. I would imagine that the Waratahs would be desperate for him to be there. But I also believe that Jed Holloway, who didn't make the the uh, who didn't travel across the ditch awaiting a baby of his own. I'm not sure if his child's arrived yet. So they potentially could be losing another Wallaby for this weekend. Uh, it is a desperate times for the Waratahs. This season has not gone to plan at all. And, and it's not just those that are unavailable. Like let, Angus Bell's injury to start the season was a catastrophic blow. He was... Yep. Of a, of a side that a disappointed, underwhelmed, and you could understand it given that there was only, you know, a lot of them hadn't had any trial form and um, big year last year. You could understand a few of them being slow out of the blocks, but guys like Izzy Parisi are struggling at the moment. 
um, being exposed defensively, too many errors in attack. Lalakai-Fagetti, uh, guys that might be coming back, been injured for a long while, like uh, like, like Walton, uh, Dylan Peach. Um, Ned Hannigan's only just returned. Um, they all look a bit short of a gallop and things aren't quite working. The pod system's not looking great at the moment. The attacking breakdown is consequently falling short there. Michael Hooper's had a very slow start to the year. Well, yeah, I wanted to, to pick up on that. Uh, Paul Cully today, I wouldn't say putting a rocket up Michael Hooper, but certainly um, suggesting that he hasn't started the season with much you know, uh, of a bang, if you like, uh, been below his best. Uh, we know Fraser McWright re-signed last week with uh, both the Reds and, and the Wallabies. We know about these two, you know, rising Brumbies, number sevens. Uh, Reimer, Luke Reimer had another fantastic game on the weekend uh, down there against uh, Moana Pacifica. So, um, uh, and, I, and a shout out and a shout out Brad Wilkin. As well. He, he's yeah. done very well. Um, yeah. So all, these guys, you know, certainly... I wouldn't say, you know, they're, they're banging down the door, banging down Eddie's door at the moment, but he's certainly, they're creating a, enough of a, a picture around what the other options might be. And, and certainly enough of, if we touch on the captaincy side of things at the moment, uh, enough doubt that you, you couldn't actually confidently say that Michael Hooper is, is worthy of being uh, the first pick number seven and the first pick person in that team, which so often the captain is. Yeah, and I, I, I don't write, like writing off champions, and it's very early in the Absolutely. season. Absolutely. 2023 is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You know, you, you're wanting to peak at various points and then taper off. I, I think Hoops seems distracted at the moment. He doesn't seem completely there. I don't know if disinterested is the word, but he certainly hasn't had the impact that he generally does. Um I've seen him bouncing around at training sessions and, and look like he's there. But what like what we've always come to expect from Michael Hooper is, yes, he might not be a fetching seven, but what he does is explosiveness, uh, hardly misses the tackle, but always competitive. He provides a lot of punch uh, with the ball in hand, often backing up. Guy who is the sort of guy that you just see and go like, wow, how's he got from here to there and doing that? Like the Energizer Bunny, four weeks into the, the season, I haven't seen that for the first time ever. And he's 31 and is 11 years, 12 years of doing this, starting to catch up with him potentially. But it's early in the season. He wouldn't be in a Wallaby side that I would have right at the moment, but it's so early in the year that you kind of go, well, you know, you give him the benefit of the doubt. He's a champion. He's Wallaby's most capped um, captain. He's one of the most capped Wallabies of all time. You you tend to think that he will come good later in the year, but as I said before, I'm I'm impressed by Brad Wilkin. He looks like the sort of guy that, he had huge raps on him. He was regarded at at a schoolboy at a higher level than David Pocock was, which is unbelievable. But after many, many years of knee injuries, et cetera, he's starting to get consecutive games, um, stringing them together. He's a bigger body, strong over the ball, defensively very good. And then you've got the other side of the spectrum, a guy like Fraser McWright, who probably got pinged a couple of times by a few dubious decisions and refereeing calls over the weekend, but he's, he's fast, he's fit, he backs up. He does kind of things that Michael Hooper used to do. Also the victim of uh, one of uh, multiple Falcons over the weekend. Uh, <laughs> Mario Fennick out there, uh, unbelievably between uh, himself and, and his great mate who he's been playing with since I think about age 12, Harry Wilson. So um, yeah, a funny moment there at, at Suncorp, but it wasn't a it wasn't a funny finish for the Reds by any stretch, was it? They um they seemed uh well and truly uh just like they're hanging on for dear life there at the finish against the Drua. Um they lost Sarah Uru to a yellow card, I think about the 56th minute. Uh, the Drua's tries didn't come until I think just after he returned, but they were really flying home. They got the offload go- game going, uh, they were breaking tackles. And really only, um, you know, fell one try short in the end, of which at one stage they, they looked likely to get, but for a, a brilliant steal from um, Philippe Dangunu. Um, bit of Fijian, uh, you know, 
uh, double agent work there from uh, from the Reds uh, winger. Um, they're not quite hitting their straps either, are they? I, I mean, apart from the the big win over the force in in week two, um, they had their moments against the Brumbies. Um, they're a bit like the Waratahs. Things just don't seem to be clicking for them at this point in the season. Once again, though, there's a theme. They're light on in the tight five, aren't they? You, you compare the Waratahs yep. to the Reds and you go, mm, you know, the fundamentals of rugby are you've got to win, win up front. And at the moment, you see the Brumbies who have got a great tight five, a really good pack, and they've got good, strong replacements in Blake Shop and in Reese Van Nick and where, you know, the luxury of not playing Alan Allen Toll for a second week and you still coast by. You know, that's something that these sides, the Reds and the Waratahs can't do at the moment. And I, that, I wasn't in Brisbane, but it looked hot, didn't it? And you it think warm. about, yeah, you know, 30, 30, 30, 31 degrees, that's Fijian kind of rugby, what they love, you know, the, the, the offloading and the rest of it. Um, Frank Lamani, geez, he's great to watch. And he, he looks like the bloke who's having the most fun at the moment in rugby, I reckon. But we saw that once we were, you lose a person to a yellow card in that particular time on that those particular conditions, it's going to impact you, not just the 10 minutes that you're off the field, but it means all everyone else has to work that much harder. And it's difficult come the five, 10 minutes after that because everyone's been gassed for the previous 10. So... We're seeing that right across Super Rugby. Sides that lose players to yellow cards really, really struggle. We saw it in the Blues and the Crusaders. We saw it with the Reds and the Hurricanes in the opening round. We saw it with the Force uh, in that second round against the Reds. You can't lose players because lineouts and scrums, there's more urgency about getting the game going. So players just can't just sit on the ground. And we're going to talk to, I think, Tom Hamilton in a moment. And oh, yeah. it was interesting. It was interesting that in the Irish-English game, clearly they're trying to do everything they can to slow the clock down. And Yako Piper, a controversial figure involved in the game, was consistently saying to Owen Farrell, hurry up, we're not waiting for this player, the third front rower in a, in a row come a line out just to get some more treatment on the ground, clearly trying to slow everything down. So that's been taken out of Super Rugby and it's showing. Yeah, incredibly, just back to Frank Lamani. How wasn't he kicking the week before in Lautoga? Did you see him striping those ones from the sideline? Teddy Tellar, I don't know whether the fix was on there and the goal kicking comp or something. He gave him 10 bucks to, to sit this one out. But my goodness, he uh, he should be doing the kicking for the rest of the year, Frank. But you're right, a great player to watch. Almost looks like he could legitimately play across any position in the back line. Uh, a lot, a lot of fun and, and does it with a big smile on his face, which we which we love. Um, I guess a couple of guys to, who did have good games for the Reds, um, Josh Fluke obviously bombed the try with going with a, the hero one hand, yeah, one arm yeah. catch rather than the two from James O'Connor, whose a short kicking game looks really good. I know you mentioned it last week, but again, uh, did the business on the weekends. Um, scored two tries otherwise, would generally sound in defence. I think a couple of other breaks. And and young Taj Annan at 12, uh, deputising for, for Hannah Paisami, was also pretty strong. So it's not... You know, it's not all bad news in Queensland, um, is it? They're uh, they're still two and two, and that's a better look than than one and three. Um, they're going to be tougher games to come, clearly. But uh, if they can get a few more players back and and just kind of find a little bit more continuity in, in what they're doing, then they might be headed in the right direction. Yeah, and good points. Uh, look, I like Josh Fluke, and I've liked him ever since I saw him first come on the scene a couple of years ago. He's such a balanced runner, and he and he. He's got leadership uh, ability. He was captain of the Australian schoolboys when they went across the ditch and beat the New Zealand schools in 2019. He's a guy that I, I, I just think that he's got wallabies written over him. I don't know if Eddie Jones thinks that he's big enough. And and more to the point, Lenny Cattell is the current wallabies 13 and so he should be. But I just like Fluke and it's good to have depth in those sorts of positions because if anything was to happen... I just think Fluke won't let you down. And that's what I like about it. Defensively, he's good too. You'll make his tackles. They're considering playing him at 12 before they opted with Tarjanin, uh, which I don't mind. Um, but you speak about the importance of being two and two. I'll tell you what, this weekend's game with the Rebels and Saturday night's really big for both their seasons because you get the feeling that whoever wins that will make the finals this year. Whoever loses, it could be really difficult because... 
They're going down Melbourne Saturday evening, Carter Gordon up against James O'Connor, who once for a small period of time was a bit of the master and the apprentice going on there with a 16-year-old who was then, you know, 18, coming through the hot young kind of prodigy that thought, I'm going to be the, uh, the Queensland Reds 10, and he wasn't, and he wasn't for a little while. He ends up going to the Rebels. He's starting to show what he's capable of at the Rebels, I think. He involved in some great moments against the Chiefs on, on Saturday afternoon. So how those two play um, could have a huge bearing on the game. I think the, the Rebels type five, for me, edges the Reds type five. Uh, the back rows, probably the Reds, maybe the halves pairing just the Reds at the moment, probably the back line too. But as we've seen throughout the opening few rounds of Super Rugby, you've got to win up front. And that's just where I'm just slightly thinking the Rebels, that could be a really, really big, big asset going into this game. You'd have to say Matt Gibbon and uh, and Sammy Talakai have had pretty strong starts to the year in that in that Rebels front row. I just one before we, we bring Tom in shortly, Christy. Uh, what do you think the the struggles, I guess, of the Reds and the Waratahs and while the Rebels we, we kind of feel they're playing a little bit better than those two teams, perhaps, but they're not haven't got the results clearly. What do you think that's doing for players like Tate McDermott and, and Jake Gordon as opposed to a Ryan Lonigan who's had two starts for the Brumbies? has come off the bench for the last two weeks and really brought something. We know he's got the added string to his bow of being a, a goal kicker who can hit them from 45, 50 uh, on a good day. And it's just playing really good rugby. And is a coming back to that rugby smarts point again, he's got them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and look, we shouldn't brush over what the Brumbies outside backs, Corey Tool and Andy Muirhead. Absolutely. They're, both, they're both playing really, really well. But you're bang on about, um, it's a good point around behind playing behind a forward pack that's structured, that knows what they're doing, that gets in positions, that sets up pod play. Uh, that question's actually been asked at the Waratahs around, well, they're going to have to make a decision very, very soon around what they're doing with their 10s. They've got four of them. No super rugby side can have four 10s and everyone be happy. Um, it just doesn't happen. They're making the decisions at the moment around who is – who's going to have to leave that franchise uh, next year. And maybe it's Ben Donaldson, maybe it's Will Harrison, but that's a big, big question. And the question was asked recently, well, yeah, but you're, you're judging Will Harrison on playing behind a Rob Penny coached Waratah side in 2020 when they didn't really have a forward pack. I don't know how you can come to a conclusion about X player. And, and, and you think about, now, you, 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 you put the current equation of Gordon and Edmund or Gordon and Donaldson and McDermott and O'Connor or McDermott line are behind forward packs that aren't necessarily going forward all the time or have the experience to test now so that guys like Frost and Neville and, and Swain and Slipper and Alatoa and Lonigan all have. It's chalk and cheese. It's incomparable. And that's where the big decision makers from general managers have to be spot on the money because it's, it, they're making tough calls. But at the moment, you don't really know where everyone's 10 stocks are or nine stocks because the quality of ball is so, is chalk and cheese between the Australian franchises at the moment. And there's only really one franchise that's good in good ball. And the Rebels, always, you, you made mention of Gibbon and, uh, and Talakai before. Well, you know, Iloff and Pone Farmacili provided the Rebels with super quick ball in that last 20, yep. 25 minutes. And Gordon and, and uh, James Tuttle benefited from it. You know, we saw a couple of tries there, but we saw them just steamroll over the top. That's not going to happen with the Reds and the Waratahs at the moment and probably not anytime soon either. Just before we, we wrap up the local scene, uh, you and I were at the, um, the CBA announcement Last week with Rugby Australia um, and, and Rupert, uh, Chief Executive and, and former Wallabies like Justin Harrison. Um, I, I mean, pretty boring stuff, really, essentially, at the core of it. Uh, deal's done. Uh, Wallabies match payments are back. We've heard previously about the Wallaroos investment. Uh, they're going to be uh, the top 30 paid. Um, and, you know, just kind of getting back to a little bit of normality after the, the chaos that was created by COVID. Um but, but you and I, we, we kind of, and a couple of others took that conversation or beyond the, the nuts and bolts of that into, I guess, the feeling around 
um, Eddie's front foot approach to um, the approaching of, of NRL players, which has been supported by Hamish McLennan and, and the media exposure and winding up the horseman, Peter Volandis and, and all this. But on the flip side, that there's a bit of unrest out there, isn't there, with the existing Australian rugby cohort of players saying, well, you know, the old Shannon Noel line, what about me? Um, where do we, you know, all we're seeing in the media is, you know, rumours of seven and 800,000. And, you know, a lot of the time that's a bit of mail on from managers trying to bump up a better deal for their their clients um, in the um, uh, in the media to, to raise their, their contract up a little bit. But there, there's definitely a, a bit of a feeling as, well, well, what are we doing here? What are we doing wrong? You know, we're the guys with the runs on the board. The, the games uh, in Super Rugby and we, we might not see the dollars at the end of the day. Yeah, it's an interesting factor. Look, I think the, and I probed Andy Marinos around this was, I think some of the frustration is also around the, the delay in some of the contracts at the moment because of the two contracting systems that they're working on at the moment. The, the, the one that they're working towards isn't across the lines. They're actually happy to do contracts based on different models for different people and, you know, the lengths of it. So it's it's a bizarre kind of state of affairs. But at the moment, before private equity and the dollars come through on that, um, the, the, the dollar counter, the bean counters, aren't quite certain about where the game's going to be at in two years' time or three years' time and around how much we can pay a particular person or individual. So it's... It's complicated, it's messy, it's not straightforward. I don't think they're as concerned around the one or two league players that have been spoken about, but I think there is an element of restlessness around why isn't this getting resolved quicker? Uh, and I can understand that too. Yeah, watch this space. Uh, clearly, um, you know, as we said, the CBA being done is, is good news, um, but uh, with, with rumours around... PE, the private in, private equity investment, even uh, which um, no real updates on that point at this time. They're they're entertaining CVC and Silver Lake and and meeting with the prospective investors, um, but um, yeah, might have to sit a little bit longer on that one. All right, uh, let's get Tom Hamilton in and talk a little bit of Six Nations. Hey guys, if you like this podcast and you like footy, why not join myself, Matt Walsh, Jake Michaels and champion data's Christian Jolly as we break down all things footy with the help of the game's best statisticians. Get the ESPN footy podcast wherever you stream your podcasts every Tuesday. How, how are you chaps? All good? Thomas, yeah, yeah we're, we're tremendous, mate. Uh, thanks for joining us again uh, up there Monday morning, uh, London time. Um, Obviously, such an impact uh, on the return last week that we thought we we had to get get you back for for a second cap uh, to wrap up the Six Nations. Um, I, I guess the weekend went as we expected, um, perhaps um, albeit with one big decision, which we'll we'll come to. Uh, but uh, Ireland uh, winning the Grand Slam um, did it pretty easily, but a better England performance. Um, I guess can you separate that from Ireland for the moment and say? that was a step in the right direction for, for England or, or just a one-off, um, you know, a bump in the road on this uh, Steve Borthwick journey? Yeah, I think so. I think it's generally seen as a step forward. I think it's it's one of those things that was, it was pretty much an impossible task, I think, for England. But to be, to be honest, until the red card, they were running Ireland pretty close and they did have them scrambling at certain times, but it's still just a case of where they are at the moment. Like the attacking game needs a lot of work. They've shipped a huge amount of tries. Looking at that final quarter, they've conceded the most points out of any team in the Six Nations in the last 20 minutes. So that's something which needs to be addressed. Um, but overall, I think Borthwick will be probably, I think, relieved almost for this now to be done in the Six Nations. It gives them a chance to reset. And as a lot of teams are doing, I'm sure um, it's probably the same with Australia as well. There's so many teams putting a huge amount of emphasis on that pre-World Cup training camp this pre-World Cup time when they can actually get the players together for the first time properly. England will have six weeks with them where before they'd only be able to train a couple of times a week, such as the, the farcical system we've got here between club and country. So I think for Borthwick, it's um, two wins out of five. It's what England have done in the last three Six Nations, which is far below where they should be. But equally, I think people recognise that it's a time of transition. It's a time where Borthwick's kind of come in and only had a limited amount of time to put a stamp on things. But equally, it's been the Six Nations where, again, it's fair to say England have fallen far short of where they should be. And, and I guess kind of exactly where we thought each of these teams are pre-tournament. Uh, clearly, 
Ireland and France are, are a step ahead and playing some outstanding rugby. Uh, their game uh, in Dublin was was one of the best in, in recent times, like whether it be World Cup, Rugby Championship, Six Nations, whatever. Just a, a cracking game of footy with, I think, about 46 minutes of of ball in play. Um, one of the games for uh, best games for a long, long time. Scotland are, are a team on the improve, but clearly not at that level yet with some tendencies to on their day, I guess, drop back to the bad old days of Scottish rugby, England, uh, obviously with Steve Borthwick coming in, as you said, on, on short notice, we're always going to struggle. Wales in all sorts, although they managed to the, redeem themselves with that win over Italy. And and Italy playing some really good rugby at times, but just probably lacking that that killer instinct, that experience of being able to close out games. We saw that on the weekend against Scotland. Um, so, I mean, there's plenty to take out, no matter which team you support in the Six Nations. Obviously, your Ireland, your Cockerhoot, France, you're pretty confident. Um, but the other teams, you know, there, there's some positive signs there and obviously a lot of things to be worried about uh, in France later in the year. Yeah, I think it was absolutely spot on. I think that's the perfect sort of summary of where we are. And I think that France and Ireland are streets ahead uh, from everyone else. Scotland have played really well, as you said, parts. Um, they still have a few little bits they need to iron out, but they've definitely improved where, where they were last year. Um, look at someone like Blair Kinghorn's performance on Saturday. He was exceptional. Um, and that was a team without Finn Russell and without Stuart Hogg. So that's an interesting where they are. Exactly that. Italy, lots of attacking possession, lots of territory, but that inability to to stay calm when it matters, when they have those chances, when they have the overlaps. Far too often passes went into touch or went behind the player or were knocked on. So that's something they need to look at. But equally, they do have this young group of players coming through who are really, really exciting. And they've got their front row back and, you know, they've got Kapuotsu at the back, who's obviously the World Rugby Breakthrough Player of the Year. He's just an exceptional talent. So they're going to, you know, they're going to make a little dent in the World Cup. It's unfortunate they're in the pool they are, but it's um, so be it when you have a draw made three years ago. Another fast school decision. But I mean, this is where we are really. And I think England and Wales, as you say, they're rebuilding and both Borthwick and Gatland spoke after the game on Saturday about the importance, as I said, of their putting on that pre-World Cup training camp. From the sound of things, those players are going to get absolutely beasted. So it's going to be a lot of fitness from the sound of things for those guys. So best of luck, chaps. Um, but that's where we are. And I think France and Ireland, one and two in the world. And it's sort of like they've kind of laid down their mark. And now it's sort of Southern Hemisphere, it's your turn really now. And then we'll see. This is the way it is, right? We'll have the rugby championship. And then South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, they'll all show improvement. They'll look like they're going to win the World Cup and by, you know, October, it's going to be flip of a coin. That's it's why it's a beautiful thing. But yeah, at the moment, Ireland playing so well. And I think, as we spoke about last week, it's their ability to handle adversity, which is so remarkable. They've had so many injuries throughout this campaign. And yet they just still kind of keep on bubbling away. You know, Josh van der Fleer throwing in at hooker for, well, throwing, sorry, at line out for 40 minutes against Scotland. You know, you had uh, Kian Healy propping down as a hooker. Um, and then you look at the players they've missed, like Doris was injured for parts of it, Furlong didn't start the tournament, Gibson Park wasn't there, Byrne wasn't there for a little while, And but they keep on just, I mean, uh, Henshaw, but they keep on just bringing these players through. The production system's unbelievable, and so that's why Ireland and France are ahead of everyone at the moment. You have the familiarity, you have the Leinster to lose link-up, you have this pathway, you have these players coming through, and that's why they're the best teams in Europe. Uh, you're not just wrong about the, um, the the summer training camps that England and Wales are going to benefit from. And, and two sides that have got new coaches, obviously the Wallabies will too, because that'll be crucial for Eddie Jones, I have no doubt. But the thing that impressed me about Ireland on the weekend was they were nervy. We saw that. You know, the balls weren't going to hand, lineouts weren't quite functioning, and a couple of kicks that were being perhaps rushed or the pressure of the moment feeling. But... That was, I think, a huge step forward for them for their World Cup perspective. Because if you think about it, and you could take us into it, but it's, you know, Paddy's and Paddy's weekend, Guinness all over the place, you know, Johnny Sexton on the cusp of Six Nations record, uh, you know, his achievement there becoming the, the most points, highest point scorer of, of any player, a Grand Slam, winning it for the first time on Irish shores in Dublin. Like the fact that they managed to overcome that, I think that sets up their World Cup campaign because it just that all go, guys, we've done this before. We've managed to handle the pressure and brace it. And that's something they've never done come World Cup. Yeah, anyway. it's been yeah, it's been sort of three quarter final exits on the on the trot for Ireland in the World Cup. So they're definitely due to go one better. Um 
So it's interesting, like Andy Farrell after the game Saturday, even he got excited by all of it, saying that Sexton's Ireland's greatest ever player. And I do wonder what the likes of Jackie Kyle, O'Driscoll, Mike Gibson and Willie John McBride might say about that. But it does so, that's where we are. And But Farrell immediately said afterwards, he, he said to Sexton, we've got bigger bigger fish to fry, I think yeah. is what he said. So, well, what, they're, they're Tom, attention. what about that kick? I think it was in the second half and Ireland was starting to lose their way and Sexton just puts it on the toes, sums it up perfectly. Moments later, Ireland score. And that was like the, the straw that broke the English camel's back. It was perfectly summed up. Yeah, and it's exactly the same. We saw it. We've seen France being able to do that as well with the uh, Dupont and Intermac as well. That sort of 9-10 combination. That's what they have, this ability that when... When you're starting to feel a bit of a pressure, um, you can find those areas. And England have had that before, though, and Farrell. I thought Farrell was absolutely exceptional against Ireland, yeah. like playing on one foot for most of the game. But it is, and that, that's why Sexton is there, really. That's why they haven't yet brought through one of the other flying halves they've got, because he has this ability to be the pressure valve, which is such a valuable um, valuable commodity to have in your team. And that's years of experience for him. Um, but, but equally, as you say, I think they did look so nervous at times, Ireland, they had like uncharacteristic errors, and it was almost like they were playing themselves at various times. And England put up a good fight. England aren't as good as Ireland, that's for certain. But it certainly does feel like this is a, a huge moment for them. And it's been such a common thing in the last however many years with the Rugby World Cup of Ireland choking when it matters. You know, back in 2019, we saw them beat uh, New Zealand the previous uh, November, and they looked like they, I think they won 16 9. And suddenly we were like, right, this Ireland team's ready to go. And they didn't. 2015. Ended against Argentina 2011 quarterfinals. I think it was Australia who knocked them out then. Wales. Um, Wales. Wales knocked them out then. So, yeah, and it's so we've seen it happen before. But I think I think the key factor here is it's, it's experience, it's collective. Um, I think they're tired of being nearly men, and I think also Andy Farrell just won't let complacency come in. He won't. He's got such an amazing mentality. Again, how England have let him go, we'll never know. But. He, he's a brilliant, brilliant coach. He's a Lions coach in waiting. And you can see how calm he was. We spoke about it last week, how calm he was when the, he sees his team going through adversity. He's his calm head, you know, he's methodical. There's zero, um, oh, I was going to say a, a word, uh, there's zero ambiguity with him, I think it's fair to say. You know exactly where you stand. But yeah, I think he's, he's the factor which can really see Ireland go from nearly men to, you know, hopefully challenging in the latter stages. A question for you both, and, and Sam, maybe to go with you first, because you'd have watched the stand coverage, but the pictures of David Nusifor in the background there, sitting next to, or standing next to Andy Farrell there, what do you make of it? Because he's, and, and Tom, will bring you in as well, his importance or his relevance to the role of, you know, the head of the high performance there, making the decisions, getting people aligned, He's not, he doesn't please everyone and he's a divisive figure over there. But Australian rugby, you imagine, could you know, benefit from someone like him being here with the experience. And, and you know, we're probably kicking ourselves thinking, how did we let this person go? Well, if you go back, Christy, I mean, Nisifora, you, you think back to the Brumbies when they won in, uh, in 2004 and, and basically would believe that the players were, were running that team, that, that Greg and Larkham. Uh, Mortlock, these guys were, were calling the shots and, and Nusifora was a bit of a passenger and his exit then from Australian rugby uh, was first to the Blues, if if memory serves, and then um, he, he made his way to Ireland a, a few years later. You can only, from afar, sit back and admire his role in, in what um, has happened over there in Ireland. Uh, clearly, the you know, Leinster at the heart, the crux of that Irish team for for some years now, and and the setup that they've got, and I, as I understand it, there's a there's a number of schools that feed directly into that Leinster. So you've got that, you know, it's not just country to club, it's country to club to schools, and and I'm sure uh, down to junior clubs within that region as well. So these guys are playing, I assume, that kind of brand of rugby, um, you know, from an early age, and then you go and you know, smart, you get a guy like Andy Friend, not to keep this in an Australian sphere for a moment, but who goes to Connaught and brings across a Mac Hanson and, you know, you get guys like Bundy Arkey and Jamison Gibson Park, who probably aren't going to be all blacks in New Zealand. And you bring them into this setup just by recognition of, okay, we're really short a winger or we're really short a, a blockbusting inside center um, to have that backroom knowledge and guys working on that side of the game outside of the nuts and bolts coaching. And, 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 and I guess the day-to-day -day running of, of each of these teams is, 
is you know just a, a really sh- smart move from from Ireland many years ago. Now, now could that be replicated back here in Australia? We know it, it's difficult because of the the setup, and there's not a lot of love lost, particularly between the QRU and New South Wales rugby, and mm. and by extension the Brumbies as well. And then you've got to factor in the Western Force and you know um, Twiggy Forest over there, and, and Melbourne Rebels as well. So. Uh, not to saying it, it couldn't happen. Oh, look, I think there's probably a still maybe one or two enemies in Australian rugby of David and Nisifor, of guys who, you know, virtually showed him the exit door. Um, and, he, and he spent time at the Australian Rugby Union as well for a couple of years too, just under rugby with Robbie Deans there, I think in 11, 12, maybe even as late as 13. On, on the flip side, you know, Eddie's just come back. So, you know, maybe everything that it's old is, is new again. I'm not saying it wouldn't be be challenging and, and certainly probably... Uh, you know, not as as aligned as as what he's has experienced in you know all heading in the same direction with Ireland, but um, yeah, you've got to just say tip your hat to him and say well done, David. What what, what uh, do I you think, think Tom? I, I think there's nothing like a a World Cup when is there to perhaps draw a line in the sand. It'll be remarkable to see what happens after this tournament. But you're you're so right. I mean, the, the Irish system is the the envy of Europe and. Um, certainly within the British and Irish Isles. Borthwick mentioned it post-match Saturday, how you're looking at the familiarity they have. They have the Leinster team, they have Toulouse uh, in France, and it's because of the, the collective system. They have these guys coming through who are in, you know, they play together from such young age, the school system, then through into like the regional system and so forth, the provincial system, sorry, in Ireland, and then through. So they they have this ability to, to backfill positions whenever they need, and it's because they've got this coherent structure, which is working, it's clicking, it's all geared towards the Irish national team. Now look at England, and it's completely different. When they have issues, you know, at the moment, they are short of props, they're short of a number eight, they're short of inside centres, and there's no way that would happen in the Irish system. Even in Scotland, they're looking at this, and now look at their front row, like Showman, probably the standout loose head, in the Six Nations, he was absolutely brilliant. But this is long-planned, you know, strategic moves. And at the moment, someone like England haven't got that. Wales are struggling equally with their whole system at the moment. It's a shambles. But looking at where Ireland are, it's clicked. And that's because of the everyone's working towards the common goal, much like the All Blacks have done for many years. Um, everyone's working towards that goal of making the, the Irish team as good as possible. Now, from there, you're looking at Leinster, you know, their dominance in Europe. You're looking at, say, Munster, Ulster, Connaught fantastic provinces in their own right but it's it's a system that's working and you imagine that if regardless of how actually how regardless of how Ireland do at this World Cup you'd imagine surely you'd think there'd be some eyes down in Australia thinking probably it's time to get this Sephora back. Mm-hmm. I thought what was also interesting over the weekend was the impact of Manu Tuolangi and it would be interesting mm-hmm. to see how now, another ball running 12 and we saw Dante he had an immediate impact with France when he came back and the Wallabies without Asamu Karevi for a period struggled in that role. So just the the bigger 12 who can truck it over the line, provide gain line, it's just such a big thing in the modern game. It is, yeah. And look, Manu Tulangi, through no fault of his own, actually a couple of times when it might have been his fault when he slightly lost his way, but he has been the sort of the answer and cause of all of England's problems since about 2010, right? <laughs> he is... Every single coach who comes in says, we need Tuolangi. And he, I mean, his injury record's been um, pretty disastrous, but on his day, he's unbelievable. Like, during the World Cup last, um, in 2019, he clicked and, you know, he was lethal. But it's, he he's honestly this almost like mythical figure now in English rugby where he has exactly what they need in every facet of the game. They've tried so hard to find Tuolangi alternatives but they end up being sort of like Diet Coke versions. They're not quite the real thing. And it's and this is where we are, right? And it's get Tuolangi fit and firing. And I thought it was so interesting how Borthwick managed him uh, throughout the Six Nations. Mm. It would have been so easy for him to turn to him immediately and say, right, we're now, a, you know, Tuolangi, in you go, you're the answer. But instead he looked at other alternatives. And I think that's really where Borthwick's been in the Six Nations, looking at those partnerships and trying to figure out exactly who he can trust, who's going to be there, who's going to improve, and who are the answers in the short and long term. So long he'll be at the World Cup. If he's fit, he goes, he starts. But it'll be so interesting to see how they juggle that that midfield partnership. Like Henry Slade's had 11 different sense partners since he's played for England. Um, it's, it's nuts, isn't it? So 
you've got George Ford to throw into the equation, you've got Owen Farrell, you, then you've got Henry Slade, you've got Ollie Lawrence, um, and a bunch of others I've forgotten. But it's, you know, it's amazing. And, you, and, you, and you've got a Marcus Smith that he doesn't trust to bring on to try to get him a, a try at the end or takes off a Henry Arundel at the end as well. Like, there's a lot going on in English rugby. Yeah. I think there's there another yeah. Tuolangi on the way too, isn't there? Might be Manu's nephew is coming up through the, yeah. the age grades. So... Um, that's something to look forward to. Um, we, we can't boys not touch on the weekend's big decision that the red cards, um, look, I, Christy, you and I have spoken about this being our, our great fear the last few years for this world cup, that it is going to not be ruined, but be, let's call it tainted by one of these big decisions, which, you know, I feel like down here in super rugby this year, Christy, we probably haven't had one yet. That's really been, Oh, they got that blatantly wrong, or that legitimately is 50 50. So I don't know whether the players have learned, but clearly the one on the weekend um, was a massive call from Yucko Piper, uh, Freddie Stewart catching uh, Hugo Keenan. Um, and the big debate is whether he was bracing um, for the position uh, to protect himself or, or actually trying to, you know, just glance. Keenan. And I think the big difference with this one was that uh, when you watched it at full speed and you watched it at, in slow-mo now at full speed in no way is there is Freddie Stewart trying to collect um, Hugo Keenan. There is the drop in body height there, which I would have thought would have, you know, resulted in at least some form of, of mitigation, mm-hmm. certainly down to a, to a yellow. Um, but then when you play it at the slower motion speed as they did, then you can probably convince yourself that hang on, that does look like a red card. So and we know so much of it these days. There was one decision down here in, in Super Rugby. Um, I think it was missed. Um, it was uh, maybe might have been in the Force and Highlanders game yesterday, which uh, wasn't replayed by the the TMO. Um, that the the match production, sorry, the the match uh, programmer, the TV broadcaster, often controls that feed and judges which things get replayed and and which don't. Now this wasn't the case, but. Um, this to me was just uh, completely being sold on the on the slow motion replay. Yeah, completely agree. And it's not like Yako Piper to get the headlines, is it? So, <laughs> um, astonishing. But uh, we'll I thought it was I thought it was a terrible call. It was a terrible yeah. call. And and there's you know from an uh, an a person that's got no skin in the game really. I thought that's just that's just mad. It's madness. Like. The bloke's trying to stop. There was a knock-on. There's all sorts of things happening. And you could say, why didn't he dodge and weave? No, like he's, you can't, when, when something like that is thrown out and it's such a, you don't expect to see it. He's clearly tried to, I think, stop there. There's no malice in it. It's a rugby incident every day of the week. And, and it's a shame that, Look, I don't think England's winning that game, but it's a shame that it had that uh, impact on it that you you question um, whether or not Ireland would have won that with 40 minutes to go. It's a terrible decision. And it's a yellow card at the very most, I think. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think also it points to rugby's existential crisis, really. I mean, how how are you meant to bring in, in, like, incident aside, but how are you meant to bring in casual fans to the game when this happens and it's so hard to explain why that's a red card and the next incident isn't and this sort of thing like it's there's far too many gray areas and it's it's not right and I don't I completely agree I don't think it was a red card I think or if you're for example I don't know if you're out walking your dog one weekend and another dog runs at you and jumps up at you you're going to turn side on to protect yourself like it's a natural instinct and this is exactly what happened there and Mac Anson would be a hell of a dog by the way like he's got it all but equally Oh, sorry, it's Hugo Keenan, Hugo Keenan. But, like, I mean, I just don't quite get it. And it was it was hugely unfortunate. It was the wrong decision for me. Um, I know that there are a huge number of people extremely bemused by the decision. Um, there's only a couple I've spoken to who felt it was right, just because of the exact lesser of the law, but exact, I think the rugby incident is the right way of putting it. And it was, it was a real shame that it was the wrong call. What's interesting, Sam, is that this week there's world rugby meetings with some of the the power brokers. There's people like Eddie Jones, really influential figures, and they'll be nutting out World Cup kind of protocols around how they want it to be policed and refereed and these sorts of moments. I wonder whether or not a moment like that will be brought up by 
all of the coaches because you don't want a World Cup quarter, semi or final or indeed uh, England-Argentina opening pool game or New Zealand-French pool game decided on that. You just can't have it. Well, it brings me up back to a point. I asked Brett Gosper years ago when he was down here whether World Rugby would ever look at instituting the, the bunker system that the NRL use or is also used in the NFL where they have their head refereeing office for for touchdowns and and video rulings in in New York. Now, obviously, it's challenging to do in a weekend of Super Rugby or Premiership or United Rugby Championship fixtures. But at a World Cup where you've got, you know, your, your days are laid out, there's breaks in between. The most games you have in a day is, what, three, maybe four on, on that opening Saturday, potentially. Mm. But to have at least one TMO in the box that can actually just provide that consistency from game to game not make the decision because we know that's the referee's call, but at least provide a bit of context, a bit of advice saying, well, hang on, we kind of ruled it this way yesterday. So let's stick with that at least through this whole tournament so that at least we get that game-to-game consistency rather than every new match we have a new referee and a new TMO who then has to make it um, individually on that decision alone. So if, if I was at those World Rugby meetings, that's what I would be putting in place. I would have a central bunker in Paris for the TMO, um, it all connected up. Surely you can't tell me in these days of broadcasting all the money that World Rugby has or certainly makes out of tournaments that they can't afford to have this set up. I think the NRL's bunker costs two million bucks a year or something. So for for what four four weekends of six weekends of action, um, it might be five hundred grand. Let's let's ballpark it at that. That's to me is a no brainer. Yeah. Um, righto, gents. I, I think that's that's a pretty good run for this week. Um, Thomas, mate, thank you for joining us. Once more, um, I've got to do my accreditation, mate. I'm sure you, I assume you probably do too, Stu. So we probably better yep. take our our, uh, our communications offline and work out who's going where and when. Uh, Christy, mate, have you done yours? I haven't, no. Um, <clears throat> please don't try to fabricate staying at your Christy Doran if you have. Uh, but, yeah, exciting. It's coming up. And I think Six Nations and Rugby Championships and it gives insights about where sides are tracking and how they're going, but oh, there is so much uncertainty about who's going to win this World Cup. I have no doubt that it's going to throw up some curly surprises, and we know that two of the real big guns on that side of the draw are going to go home at quarters. Can a Scotland shock someone before that as well? Who knows? But there's so much excitement about the World Cup, and this Six Nations just proved it. What, a, what an epic tournament. Absolutely. And Ireland and France playing the kind of rugby uh, we want to see played when the game's on its grandest stage. Uh, All right, chaps. Thanks again. And uh, everyone else, we'll talk to you in seven days' time. Cheers.